You're listening to the Tablecast. Pull up a chair and join the conversation. Well, hey there, everybody, and welcome to the Tablecast. Happy December, happy Advent, happy Christmas, uh, whatever you want to say. We are just so glad that you decided to join us uh, for this episode of the Tablecast. So, for the last couple of months, we've been asking questions about uh, discipleship and how we can grow as better followers of Jesus. We've asked this question, uh, what does radical hospitality look like in my life? And we went through uh, some different things. And then in the month of October, um, going back a little bit further, we asked this question about what does love require of me? Uh, and we'll get back to those questions uh, a little bit later, um, probably the first of the year. We're going to introduce some new questions to you that we're going to discuss that will help you grow as a disciple uh, and hopefully will be really beneficial for you. But for the month of December, I thought we'd switch gears just a little bit and uh, maybe start off with uh, a Christmas sermon. How about that? And so I'm really excited to share this. I've, I've done this material before uh, several times, and, and I'm just so excited to get to share it with you here on the Tablecast. It's some of my favorite material, uh, and I really, really hope that you enjoy it. So sit back and relax and enjoy this sermon. So there's no doubt in my mind that you have already seen or heard about a war that's going on. It's an annual war that starts well before Thanksgiving these days, and it builds steam until the very end of the year. It's highly likely that you've gotten email forwards or seen Facebook posts or read newspaper editorials or seen on the news stations this uh, war that's been addressed uh, and people, how people are supposed to go out and fight it. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about the war on Christmas. You've seen or heard about this, right? I mean, it's all over the place. This year, our president came out uh, declaring that the White House uh, Christmas tree lighting uh, would be a Christmas celebration and that we're going to start saying Merry Christmas again. Some of the more conservative news networks are always up in arms about some Walmart greeter or a waiter at a restaurant wishing somebody a happy holidays rather than a Merry Christmas. And once again, we see companies like Starbucks being criticized for their seasonal cups that are not Christmassy enough. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy, right? If, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, let me give you some of the basics of the argument. So for these types of folks, this is kind of what's going on. They believe that as Christians, we should combat the cultural assimilation and the political correctness that have encouraged corporations around the United States to exchange phrases like Merry Christmas with more universal sayings, something like Happy Holidays or Season's Greetings. They also argue that we should be enraged that decorations and trees are no longer labeled with the title of Christmas, but are maybe just more generic, like a seasonal tree. Uh, we should even be more upset that things like nativity scenes and Christmas carols are not allowed on government properties and have been moved into the margins of society. In short, though, these folks argue that we need to keep Christ in Christmas. Though, honestly, I'm not sure if he ever went anywhere. <laughs> uh, I also should say here that that X in Christmas, uh, or you see Xmas, is really just the first letter of the Greek word for Christ. But uh, I, I digress. Well, that's another sermon for another day. <laughs> in other words, these folks are trying to keep the secular world from kicking Jesus out of his own party. And I, I get it. 
I understand that people want to keep this season as holy. But here's the deal, and it's something we can't forget when we hear folks calling the church to arms during this time of year. There's been a war on Christmas since the very first one. And not just in this physical world. Yeah, I believe there most definitely is a war going on during Christmas, but it's not the type of war where we get angry at the Walmart greeter for not telling us Merry Christmas or that we get angry at Starbucks because their art on their cup is not Christmassy enough. No, this war that I'm talking about is much, much bigger than that. The Apostle Paul says this in his letter to the church in Ephesus. He says this, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Friends, we are at war, but don't let the media fool you into thinking that our battle is something that we are fighting here. And so today I want to look at the Christmas story in a way you may have never, ever heard it. But I want you to be warned This Christmas story reads more like Lord of the Rings than it does Charlie Brown's holiday special. This Christmas story is about war. So we're going to go to the book of Revelation, and you may be thinking, hmm, that seems like an odd location to go for a Christmas sermon, and you would be right. (laughs) When we think of Revelation, I bet most of us wouldn't think Christmas because we often think of Revelation as something that will happen in the future. A prophecy. But Revelation has a lot more to say about our life than left behind authors would have you believe. Uh, There is uh, implications for here and now. You see, Revelation at its core is a book about hope. Yeah, it's hope that will be fully experienced at the future coming of Christ, but it's also hope for now. In Revelation, we find this intermingling of what some have called the already but not yet world. And that's where we're going to find ourselves immersed in this really strange Christmas story. And so um, if you're listening along, I'll read this passage from Revelation. If you want to open a Bible, if you're someplace where you can do that, you can do that as well. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 12. So I'm going to read the entire chapter so we can get our bearings. So just, just kind of bear with me here. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. 
the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I, John, heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accused them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, you heavens and all who dwell in them, rejoice. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you and he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commandments of God, who hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the nativity scenes I have don't include any dragons. Uh, has anyone seen a dragon in the nativity scenes around this year? <laughs> no? No? Okay. Yeah, so uh, our nativity scenes are much more serene, aren't they? Uh, they reflect more of what we might sing in the song Silent Night. You know, all that's calm. But what that little town of Bethlehem didn't know was that there was a war raging in heaven because of this little boy born in a stable. This account of Revelation 12 has three pretty distinct scenes as I see it. So I just want to take a moment here and, and look at what uh, each of them has to say. And we're going to see if John can reveal anything new to us about what the Christmas story can teach us about this, this war on Christmas. So first of all, remember that scene in verses 1 through 6? John introduces us to the main characters here. This wondrous sign that's being revealed to us. There's a woman. She's pregnant and she's in pain and about to give birth. And then we meet the antagonist of the story, this seven-headed, fiery, red, enormous dragon. And with an unexpected twist, the hero arrives in the scene, not as an armor-clad warrior, at least not yet, but as a, what, a, a baby boy. And John tells us that the dragon waits to devour the baby the instant it is to be born because the dragon knows that this baby means trouble for him. Now, there's been a lot of things said about these characters and what they mean to the story. And uh, if you dive into the internet, which is a very scary place when it comes to the book of Revelation, <laughs> uh, know that a lot of those things are uh, really, really ridiculous. 
Uh, there are some things out there on the internet, y'all, that, that even Tim LaHaye, the author of Left Behind, would say, guys, I think you need to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> yeah. All that said, though, there's a lot of speculation, but I think it's pretty clear here that the dragon is most definitely Satan. Uh, I mean, that's what, what the author says here, right? And I'm almost certain that this baby boy in the story represents Jesus. But the woman, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, Most believe that this woman represents the nation of Israel, who would be the soil in which the seed of Abraham would take root and flourish, thus giving us Jesus. Uh, Some say that John may be mixing his metaphors here. And to uh, include the woman to also be the church, Um, And so we're trying to make sense of this woman, but rather than trying to make the strange, trippy head dream uh, into a reality that fits our human understandings, it's best to read Revelation with a really healthy dose of mystery. I mean, there is a dragon in this story, so I mean, just kind of know where we're at here in terms of how we interpret this. Uh, Look more at this passage using that lens of mystery. What can we glean from this vision? Now, at this point, you're probably thinking that, uh, hmm, this is starting to sound like some of the stuff that happened at Jesus' birth. Um, and yeah, it's, it really is. There's some stuff that's aligning here that's kind of crazy. And we don't typically include this really important detail in our Christmas stories, but you might recall in Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus, there's this crazy king by the name of Herod. Herod was a complete nutcase. Uh, People described him as a madman who murdered his own family. Uh, He was a person prepared to commit any crime to gratify his ambitions. And being crazy, uh, King Herod sends out a few of his wise men who were to be spies to go find this baby boy who uh, who was foretold to be the king of the Jews. And that title, king of the Jews, was a title that Herod wanted for himself during this rule. And so Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents, catch wind of Herod's plans, and they flee into the desert to hide from Herod. And so you can imagine that Herod goes completely nuts when he finds out that he's been duped by the wise men. And so he goes on this killing spree, eradicating all the boys under the age of two in the area surrounding this little village of Bethlehem, in hopes that he will destroy this newborn king. Now, I don't know about you, but it looks like Satan, or the dragon, is using Herod here as an agent to kill Jesus at his birth, just like what John saw in his vision. So the war on the first Christmas is now well underway. Which brings us to scene two in our strange Christmas passage. If you look back at Revelation 12, uh, let's look a little bit deeper into the battle that ensues there. In in chapter 12, verses 7 through 12, John tells us about this divine war between the dragon and his angels and Michael and his angels. Uh, It's apparently a battle of really epic proportions. It'd make a great movie. But but John tells us that the dragon wasn't strong enough. And we rejoice in verse 8. The enemy has been defeated, and the dragon's been cast out of heaven. And in verse 10, we're told that there was this great voice in heaven, one we can only assume was rejoicing the fact that the dragon was gone. And it said this, Now have come the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God, for the accuser, that is the dragon, has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. The verb there for overcame is one that denotes a completed and final 
action. The war has been won, but the dragon isn't done yet. Because those words of rejoicing quickly turn to words of warning. The second half of verse 12 says this, But woe to the earth, because the devil has gone to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. What this scene is trying to tell us, I think, is that we should be rejoicing, because the enemy has been taken down. But we should be on our guard, because the dragon is now on the loose, and he's not happy. Which lands us in the third scene of this Revelation passage. The woman and the baby have been rescued despite the dragon's best attempts to destroy them. And this makes the dragon all the more mad. And in verse 17, John says, Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Now, wait a minute here. That's not the way we want our Christmas story to end, is it? Why didn't the story end with the dragon being defeated? The story lingers and the tension between the dragon and this baby king continues to build. The dragon, knowing his time is short and having no more access to heaven, must vent all of his anger earthward. And so John leaves no room for interpretation here, saying that those on the receiving end of this rage are those who obey the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And just in case you haven't figured it out yet, that's us. The dragon's war on Christmas has turned into an all-out raid on God's people. And so I bet that there are more than a few of us here who have felt the heat of the battle against the dragon in our lifetime. We've felt the effects of the dragon being on the loose as he's waged war against us on Christmases and every other day of the year. For some of you listening, the dragon has employed his terrible agent called cancer or disease or heart attack, and you feel the wrath of the dragon on your physical health. Others of you have experienced loss this year And the dragon comes to you as you put up Christmas ornaments alone or as you look at that empty seat at the dinner table this year. There are probably others of you who are listening whose dragon looks a lot like addiction. You know, addiction to that website that no one knows you visit. Addiction to that bottle that you hide deep in the pantry or your medicine cabinet. Or an addiction to food or self-image or media or success. And you want so bad to get away from them, but you're battle-weary because the dragon continues to sink his fangs into you. And you can feel his poison pulsing through your veins with every heartbeat. Maybe the dragon took your unborn child this year. Maybe the dragon dashed your hopes and dreams against the pavement after you lost that job that you thought was for sure secure. And, or maybe the dragon has bitten into your marriage or into your relationship with your parent or child. Or maybe the dragon has flipped you upside down and thrashed you from side to side for so long that you have no idea which way is up. You know, all of this makes me wonder if Mary ever felt the dragon's presence during her pregnancy. There's nothing in scripture that would allude to any of this, but it makes me wonder if she felt it when people looked at her with glaring eyes, 
or they said demeaning things about her within earshot. You know, those nine months leading up to Jesus' birth were probably pretty controversial in Mary's little town. I wonder if the birth itself might even been a little more painful. I wonder if she and Joseph felt the dragon chasing them as Herod was seeking to kill all the little boys in their hometown. I would bet that as Jesus grew older, he felt it. As he was led into the desert where he was tempted by Satan himself, or when he was arrested and crucified, I would bet the Apostle Paul felt it as he was taken to the edge of town to be beaten and killed, or when he couldn't get rid of that pesky thorn in the flesh he talks about in 2 Corinthians that he just couldn't shake. The early church to whom John is writing here in the book of Revelation certainly felt it as the Roman Empire had their foot on the throat of the church throughout the persecution of the Christians in an effort to squelch this message of God. Friends, there is most definitely a war going on. So the question is, what do we do about it? I mean, the dragon's on the loose, right? He's waging war with God's people even right now. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be on your guard. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We know deep down that the dragon's been defeated, but there are Christmases and other days throughout our life where it feels like he's actually gaining ground on us. I mean, the next few chapters of Revelation show that the dragon is not alone. He has friends, and they all want a piece of God's people. And it's on those days that I suggest that we circle back to the voice in heaven that we read in Revelation 12, verses 10 through 12, that declares that Satan has been hurled down. He's been overcome. And here's the good news. He knows that his time is short. This is good news because the baby who was born that caused this war in heaven has caused the dragon to be hurled down to the earth and put the dragon on a clock. His time is short. The second hand is ticking away, counting the time until that little baby becomes the warrior king that comes to save the entire world and to make all things new. In the last couple of chapters of Revelation, we read this story and we realize that the dragon is cast away. He's chained, he's bound, and he's sent away. And I love the way that Revelation ends that there is a new heaven and a new earth where there's no pain or suffering or tears or crying because that little baby defeated the dragon. How's that for a Christmas story? Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.